Standby playback. And now, live. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's First Amendment Friday. I'll get back to your calls shortly. But I want to talk to Robert Greenway, who's director of the National Center for, uh, Center for National Defense at the Heritage Foundation. Ms. Greenway, welcome to the program. And am I stating it too bluntly if I say the Biden administration cares a heck of a lot more about illegal aliens than it does about members of our military? Well, thanks for having me on, Lars. Uh, no, I don't think you're saying it too bluntly. As the, the wise uh, man once said, show me your budget, I'll show you your priorities. And that's what we found to be the case. What did you find at Heritage when you looked into that? So it was actually the recent uh, Government Accountability Office report about hard conditions among our enlisted barracks on military installations that triggered this sort of uh, inquiry into how much we're spending. And what we found was even for us, we're used to doing this, a little bit shocking. The administration has is is budgeted uh, $2.5 billion for illegal immigrant housing and care broadly, is actually spending north of $4 billion. And for military service members on base, the budgeting number is $56 million. So quite a, quite a significant discrepancy. Well, it is. And let me ask you something, and, and maybe this is a technical question, but you're the guy who ought to be able to answer it. I thought under the Constitution, the only way the government can spend money is if Congress appropriates it. How, how does a president get away with saying, well, the budget's, you know, two and a half billion, but we're going to spend four? I mean, because it's one thing if you have a, a slight overage. I mean, there might be cases where the Congress appropriates, you know, $10 million or something, and they spend $10 million and 200000 And you might say, okay, it's a rounding error. It's not that big a deal. But going from two and a half to four without congressional authority? Well, so the odd thing is for illegal immigrants and a couple of other causes, uh, it's tight. It's really the number is pegged to how many actually end up in the country. So the law requires a certain amount of care and funding appropriated for illegal immigrants. And so when the number goes up and currently we're experiencing record numbers, as you know, then the number has to has to also increase accordingly. So the law actually requires a certain amount of care for illegal immigrants. But the intent was never to receive uh, the, the historic numbers that we have been. And that's throwing this out of whack. But even if we didn't, the numbers between what we're spending for our military service members and what we're spending for illegal immigrants is completely out of whack. No, it is because, at least in the case of the military, am I correct in saying within the continental United States, most of the facilities, and we're not counting what I would call imputed value, uh, where if I owned a house outright, the only costs I have are maintenance and utilities and maybe taxes. If you own a military base, you own all the facilities on it. Uh, you've got all the barracks and you've got the ma- uh, ch- uh, chow halls and all that. Uh, your costs are somewhat lower because you've already put in over the decades probably 
hundred, well, at least tens of billions of dollars into building all that infrastructure. So it should be relatively easy to take care of the maintenance and the utilities and all the other things that go into keeping those facilities up for a given number of troops. Am I seeing that the right way or the wrong way? Oh, no, you absolutely are. And of course, it's a, it's a function of scale, right? So we've got a significant number of service members that many of which are living on base that's by design. And as a result, you know, we've got a significant uh, amount of facilities for which we have to obviously maintain and, and provide for all of those service members. And the, the, the responsibility, of course, is that we take care of them. And if you had to pay all those costs in real time, the way they are with the illegals, it might be a lot more expensive to take care of our military members. But so the Congress literally wrote a law without ever assuming that they might end up with literally millions of illegal aliens coming in in a two or three year period. Well, I suspect there was uh, probably some suspicion that might be the case. Um, and, and I think, you know, probably under the circumstances, they felt that uh, it was a, a compromise that had to be made, as so often happens in Washington. But but it's interesting that the same the same provision isn't made for our service members. So we account for the fact that, well, if we have more illegal immigrants, then we need to fund more and provide a standard, frankly, that is completely distorted. We're not. We don't have the same standard or flexibility for our service members. And so when the report came out and said we've got mold, break-ins, and unsafe conditions in our, our barracks and, and military housing, we don't have a mechanism now to go in there and redress it. But no matter how many aliens cross the border, and we're over $2 million this year, 200000 a month, are coming in now, we, we automatically now are spending a significant amount on top of it. This doesn't, by the way, account for the cost in individual cities and communities. And just for housing in New York, they're spending billions on hotel rooms for illegal immigrants. That's above and beyond, in many cases, what we were able to identify. And so the number is actually much larger. Well, my number that I've been using because I got it out of New York maybe three weeks ago was they're spending, they're telling citizens we're going to spend at least a billion dollars a month, 12 billion over the next 12 months or over the next fiscal year, uh, providing for illegal aliens. So, you know, I want to get back to the veterans, but I'm concerned about American citizens as well, where you've got cities like um, New York City, where Kathy Hochul, the governor of the state, says we're getting the majority of these people. And I'm thinking, you're getting 250,000. You're getting a, yeah, a fraction of the number I yeah. keep using, Robert. Feel free to correct me. But the number I saw from Border Patrol was 7.5 million contacted aliens, 1.4 million uh, gotaways. I've been rounding that to say that's 9 million in the last two and a half years. That's 9 million people coming in. And New York's got a couple of hundred thousand at most that they're counting officially. So they're, they're not even getting the percentage they would get if New York State, which is 6% of the U.S. population, got 6% of the illegal aliens. They'd have twice as many. Robert, did we lose touch with you? Yeah. I think we might have. Let's see if we drop that connection, and I'm going to grab a call in the meantime. Let me go to, uh, let's go uh, Let's go first to Victor. Hey, Victor, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. It's First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Uh, the uh, two biggest enemies of the United States is the news media and the <laughs> Democrat Party. Can't disagree with you. And uh, they're, they're destroying our, our country. Now when Trump gets in... He'll have to spend a lot of money because the Democrat Party always runs the military down. And he'll have to uh, 
spend like everything to get us back up so we have some protection. I think you're absolutely right. I wanted to say thanks to Robert Greenway. Robert, sorry about that drop connection. I I apologize. I don't know where it happened, but we appreciate what you do at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for coming on tonight. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Lars. Absolutely. Good to have you on. It is First Amendment Friday. I'm glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. When it comes to federal judges, do you want a judge on the bench, on the federal bench, who espouses a Marxist philosophy? My vote on that is no, but that's exactly what Joe Biden is putting before the U.S. Senate for confirmation. It is First Amendment Friday, and you're listening to the Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play it. Honestly provocative talk for America. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Talk to Lars? 866 Hey Lars. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Wednesday. It's my pleasure to be with you, and I'll get back to your phone calls and emails shortly. But one of the things I admire is whistleblowers. Uh, when I was a reporter, I used to have lots and lots of sources. Uh, some of them gave me big stories, some gave me small stories. But I always said I would protect their anonymity because otherwise you end up with no sources at all. And many ca- in many cases, most cases, when I got a tip about something, it was because somebody saw something happening inside the institution they work in, whether it's a private institution like a business or whether it's inside a government institution like a, a police agency uh, or any other kind of agency. They looked at it and said, that is wrong. People need to know what's happening. Well, the question today is, we say we offer protections to whistleblowers, but do we really? And are there good examples where that has not happened? Jim Burling is vice president at Pacific Legal Foundation. Jim, welcome back to the program. Hey, it's nice to be with you, Lars. You've got some good examples where whistleblowers did the right thing, and yet they were not nearly as protected as we might have hoped they would be. Yeah, so there's a case that's being argued by the Supreme Court now, Trevor Murray versus UBS Securities. He was an analyst, and he was tasked to look at the risk involved with mortgage-backed securities. This was in 2011, or 2010 and 2011. It was after the big crash of 2008. But there's still a lot of problems with you know, mortgage-backed securities and the risk. And he felt pressured by his superiors at UBS to downplay the risk of these mortgage-backed securities. And he was supposed to, under the law, Sarbanes-Oxley, to give an independent review of what the risk was. And he refused. He said, look, I am not going to sugarcoat this. I am not going to be on board as part of the team to really focus on the securities. And he was terminated. Now, the question is, was he terminated as a result of his refusal to sugarcoat the risk from the mortgage-backed securities business UBS was in, or 
UBS says, well, we had a reduction in force. We huh. uh, let go 128 people the same day we let go Trevor Murray. And we decided we weren't going to get involved in this risky business of mortgage-backed securities. And so we let him go because there's really no use for him in the company anymore. Well, he argued, no, you didn't let me go because you decided to do a reduction in force. You let me go because I was blowing the whistle on the risk involving these securities. And this court, and, and he, he sued. He sued in federal district court saying that this was a violation of Sarbanes-Oxley. He was protected by the whistleblower protection scheme in, in the portion of Sarbanes-Oxley. And, uh, and I should mention, incidentally, this Sarbanes-Oxley was put in 2002 in response to the Enron scandal. Right. And the Congress was trying to encourage more whistleblowers. So eventually the, the trial court awarded him $1.7 million for unlawful firing. The Second Circuit reversed, and it comes down to what does somebody have to prove that they were fired because of their whistleblowing rather than for other causes. Well, and in fact, isn't UBS's argument, I'm not a lawyer, but Jim, isn't UBS's argument a little bit circular? They say, well, we got rid of him because we didn't need him anymore because we decided not to go into mortgage-backed securities, but they couldn't very well go into a business. Their own analyst was on record saying, this is riskier than, than, you, than you say it is, and, and you're going to go into this. With that already on the table, they couldn't go into that business, but it wasn't because they decided they weren't going to go into it. Uh, if they decided we're going to go into this, tell us how risky it is. And he comes back and says, it looks really risky. And they say, could you you know, make that look a lot better so we can go in and do the business anyway and tell our clients it's okay? And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. It seems logical that they would say, well, if we go into it now and on paper we've already been warned about the riskiness, we're going to end up owning all of the downside if it goes bad for our clients because our clients are going to see you were warned, you put us in there anyway. And so they get rid of him, but they get rid of him by saying, hey, we got rid of 150 people. I can't remember how many UBS actually employs, but out of their, I, I would imagine, fairly sizable workforce... He, how many? Tens of thousands? So Tens of you, thousands. Your name, your name just happened to pop up on the list as the guy most likely to be let go because you were telling us things that were inconvenient. How would that persuade any court? Well, it persuaded the Second Circuit because the Second Circuit said you had to prove retaliatory intent. And that's the question that the Supreme Court is, was wrestling with in the arguments before the court yesterday. They had a oral argument. And a lot of the justices, both conservative and liberal, were a little skeptical of UBS's argument, saying, well, the statute doesn't say specifically that you need to prove that the plaintiff, Trevor Murray, has to prove retaliatory intent, that they have simply have to say that the uh, whistleblowing was a, quote, contributing factor toward the firing. So is it a question of retaliatory intent, or is it a question of, it was just a contributing factor? And if you look at the Sarbanes-Oxley Act itself, that's where it becomes a little murky. Uh, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act itself doesn't necessarily say that it has to be regular, uh, discriminatory intent uh, because of the whistleblowing, but it's more of a contributing factor. But the UBS and some of UBS's allies, Chamber of Commerce and others, said, no, no, you really need to show that there's intent to do that because the Trevor Murray and the plaintiffs are really focusing on 
federal employment statutes, you know, federal employees, and that when we have private employers, it's a different standard. And I think the court was looking at this, and they were kind of skeptical of UBS's arguments. Um, it, it's impossible to tell in advance how they're going to rule, but I think they really saw a problem here with um, having the burden too high on a whistleblower when Congress did seem to want to make it easier for whistleblowers to um, blow the whistle, if you will, without getting fired. And by the way, Jim, doesn't that suggest that Congress should get busy? If they've got a, a statute that, that that's that unclear about what the Congress intended when it wrote the law, isn't it about time to go back and rewrite the law? You know, I could say that, Billy, a million things. And Congress <laughs> could spend its time making clear laws instead of getting into these big political brouhaha's about who's going to be in charge of what for how long or how many minutes. No kidding, because as of tonight, by the way, since you brought it up, we've got uh, Steve Scalise, who I admire, nominated to be the House Speaker, and then they all go home and decide not to work to a final solution because they say he doesn't have the votes, but he is the choice. Uh, he's the choice of the Republicans. And, and so they're going to let that thing dangle for a while, I assume, while they do more horse trading behind behind closed doors instead of getting to things that are really important. And this one is. I mean, I realize we've got Israel going on right now and everything else, uh, which is hugely important. We've got a southern border problem. We've got an oil problem. We've got a, an, a, an economy problem. We've got a lot of problems. But this one's a big one as well, because it affects, what, virtually anybody who has any kind of investments anywhere in America. Yeah, it affects those, pe it affects those people, and it also affects anybody who is an employer. They want to know what the standards are before they can let somebody go if that person's a complainer. I mean, one of the arguments that the businesses make is that you have people that are just whiners and complainers. We fire them, and then they bring a whistleblowing lawsuit. Well, we don't want those suits to be successful, but when somebody's a legitimate, genuine whistleblower, we want to have clear standards so we know who they are and how they're protected. Well, exactly, because look, Jim, I've seen that happen too, where you've got an employee who's on his or her last legs because they don't show up on time, they don't do their job, whatever it happens to be, and then the minute they're threatened, you know, with some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of action, like you're going to get fired, you're going to have your hours reduced, uh, they, they immediately say, you see, you're just retaliating. But in his case, especially when you got somebody saying, you're about to put billions of dollars of your com of your customers money into things that are more risky than you want to say they are. Uh, that sounds like a big enough problem that I would consider him a whistleblower and not just somebody who is griping about his job. Jim, thanks for what you do at the Pacific Legal Foundation. We always appreciate your time. Great talking with you, Lars. Thank you, sir. That's Jim Burling. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show and check me out on Instagram. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Only one in five people with disabilities... Stream the Lars Larson Show live at LarsLarson.com. 
You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's First Amendment Friday, and I'm glad to be with you. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I'd be lying to you if I told you that I agree with everything that Elon Musk does, although I'd, per, I'd willingly admit to you that I applauded when he came in, took a gigantic amount of money, and bought Twitter. Changed the name to X. I'm not as crazy about that. But he bought the place, fired a bunch of people, and outed a lot of information about how information going to Americans, including you and including me, was being manipulated by people within Twitter often at the behest of the United States government, which is so wrong, I can't even begin to describe it. But now, now we've got the prospect that the European Union, God bless them in their confusion, have decided to wage war against X, formerly Twitter. And I thought we'd bring on James Chernowski, who's a senior policy analyst in technology and innovation at Americans for Prosperity and a good friend of the show. James, thanks very much for taking the time today. Of course, anytime. Thanks for having me, Lars. What, what, what exactly is going where the Euro- European Commission wants to tell Twitter what kind of information it can display uh, to, to the users of Twitter and what kind of, I assume, what kind of information users of Twitter, including yours truly, uh, can put up or, and, and expect to be seen by a lot of people? What are they doing? Yeah, that's a great question, Lars. And really what I think it is, is it's actually highlighting an alarming trend that I know that we talked about not too long ago when the EU went and nominated all those American companies to be covered underneath the Digital Services Act. So that's what's happening here, is that underneath the powers that are granted to the European authorities underneath that legislation, they are sending out letters to Twitter, to Facebook. They got one there yesterday um, about, you know, in this case now, the situation that's unfolding in Israel and Hamas. Um, and they are trying to go and increase the responsibilities of Twitter and Facebook to take down content uh, per the rules of the DSA. Uh, notably, within those letters, uh, they, they talk about the misinformation that's being spread online and how the platforms need to be doing more uh, to go and take action on that type of content. And it's just a really alarming thing because at the same time, this is the same European Union uh, that claims they care about free speech while they're sending letters saying you must take down this other kind of speech that's online that we don't like. So that's really the crux of what's happening here. And it's turning into quite an ugly situation. This is something that we predicted when this legislation was passed and going to come into effect that we were going to see that kind of stuff. And this is the early signs of the European Union flexing its muscles. Well, James, let me ask you this. What, is there a political, te- uh, say, t- a tenor to, to their directions? Because in this country, when the Biden administration wants to lock down information, they want the information they shovel out, right or wrong, to go right on through, and they want to shut down everybody else's information. Is the European Union discriminating in that same way? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that that's one of the problems that we're seeing here. And actually, it was one of the things that was reported this week, too, is that the European Union was micro-targeting uh, certain posts on social media that they claimed were spreading misinformation about uh, a different proposal that they're looking at that would cover end-to-end encryption. Uh, and again, this is just, they have a proposal out there, and people, lots of civil liberties experts, as well as people like myself, have highlighted some of the concerns that come with that proposal. And the European Union is apparently micro-targeting those posts and, and saying that that's misinformation. Uh, so really, again, I think that it's a, a really strong case of displaying just how you know, you gave the government this power and they're leveraging it to the hilt to go and silence the dissidents that don't agree with them on their preferred policy positions. So it's a really alarming trend 
for, once again, a group that allegedly cares about free speech. Now, thankfully, none of this would fly in the United States uh, because of our First Amendment. But unfortunately, uh, with the Internet being a borderless medium, the European Union with the DSA here is going to certainly have an impact on the kinds of content that even we as Americans are seeing online. Well, we even saw, and I think you and I have talked about this, how the government works around the First Amendment by saying, we're not censoring anybody. We're just asking our buddies at Facebook or Meta, whatever you want to call it, uh, and the other social media to do it. And they're doing it out of an abundance of concern about misinformation. So they managed to get the censorship they want without having their dirty fingerprints on it. Now, is there any reason that the EU wouldn't do the same thing, saying, oh, no, uh, but 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 if you want to do business in Europe, you're going to have to, you know, kind of make sure we don't get angry at you. So make sure you take down stuff that might make us angry. Or the next time you come up in front of the EU commission, we're going to say, yeah, you're not allowed to do business here anymore. And you're going to lose billions of dollars. They can still achieve the censorship, even if they don't end up with their fingerprints on it. Right. Oh, you're absolutely right, Lars. I think that's actually one of the things about the DSA that people didn't realize. And that was something I was highlighting back then is that. Part of the DSA compliance requirements are that if you do not do what they're asking you to do, you can face massive fines up to 6% of your global uh, income that you've earned as a company. And even for a company like Twitter or for Meta, that's, that's a lot of money that's on the line. So if you're a client, uh, if you're a lawyer that's advising them, right, you're going to go and tell them to do what you can to avoid any kind of liability, which means that they would be taking steps to go and ultimately censor what might otherwise be considered perfectly legitimate content online. It's not It's not the same thing as like, hey, you know, there's some – uh, illegal things that are happening, and you know, there's a nexus where you went, where you might expect the government to go and have that collaboration, and it makes sense. It's not the same thing as you know the, the Fauci parody account stuff that we've seen come out through the Missouri v. Biden uh, discovery material. It's not the same thing as memes that have been flagged as well. Um, you know, again, it's just a really troubling situation here because you gave the government some power, and unsurprisingly, so it took them no time to go and massively expand how they're going to apply it. Well, and the other part about this is I would think that especially during things like a massive terrorist attack like what happened last weekend, you'd want all sources of information and let people sort it out for themselves. And here's why I say that. I was a little kid when the Vietnam War was going on or I was a young teenager. But I remember there were plenty of times where the the U.S. government would say, we're not bombing in Cambodia or we're, or we have oh, this level of enemy kills and only this level of U.S. casualties. And then you'd see enterprising reporters who'd go in and say, no, U.S. casualties are higher than they're telling you. The, the bad guys, uh, you know, in that case, uh, the North Vietnamese, uh, they're, they're not losing as many as the government. And the government's just lying to you that, that having a free and unfettered press is a great safeguard against that kind of manipulation by the government. Yes, 100%, Lars. I think that it's very concerning whenever you see the government trying to put its thumb on the scale, which is why I actually think, obviously, everything that's transpired in Israel has been horrifying. The imagery and all of that has, I think, really like impacted a lot of people uh, all around the world, truly. And that's actually where social media did, I would argue, a really good job, because it was able to go and spread what was a horrifying event and make people actually realize the calamity of it all in a much more intimate way than you might have otherwise had 20, 30 years ago if you were just relying on the press the traditional press to go and report on it, right? Um, so I think that that's gone and shaped a lot of people's experience in terms of processing and accepting like what's going on over there. Um, and again, it, it's at risk if you have the government that's going to try to put their, their thumb on the scale here. So it's really unfortunate. And, you know, I wish that the United States government, both in the Biden administration as well as members of Congress, would stand up to this aggressive and egregious overreach by the European Union to try to control the dissemination of information online.
American values have to win out on the global stage, and just they're not willing to do it right now, and it's a true shame. Last 20 seconds, is there any way the companies themselves can push back and say to the European Union, you can't control what we tell you or what, what we uh, produce? I mean, they can try within reason, right? I know Elon, when in his response, basically said, hey, list out the violation for me and we'll gladly work with you. Um, but at the end of the day, because of those very credible fines and potential blackout from being offered in Europe as a service, more broadly speaking, I think companies are under immense pressure to go and comply with it or, you know, seriously lose a lot of money and, and be at further risk for more punishment. So um, this is why, like I said, Congress and, and the Biden administration have to step up and defend American values. Let's hope so. Although having Joe Biden stand up for American values, he can barely stand up most days. That's James Ranowski, who's a senior policy analyst in technology and innovation at Americans for Prosperity. Back in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. Emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show and tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Pleasure to be with you. Now, I know that a lot of us have been tempted to do exactly what John Caldera did. He's president of the Independence Institute. He's an editorial columnist for the Denver Gazette in uh, in Colorado. And he's also involved in Colorado politics. He's also a radio host on KHOW and KOA. But he took a bag of stuff. Uh, I guess for radio purposes, we could take call that excrement. We'd call it crap, whatever we want to call it. Uh, and he dumped it on the steps at City Hall. And and that is the kind of pungent example you can use to get the attention of City Hall. So, John, the first question is, did you get City Hall Denver's attention? I most certainly did get their attention. Does it change anything? No, not even slightly. Well, and here's the thing that's going on. Denver, like any other big city, has a homeless problem, although I figure it's probably a smaller one than some cities like the city I live in uh, because it's massive in other cities. Portland, Seattle, places like that have gigantic homeless problems. They count the homeless in the thousands. I would would beg to differ. Um, Denver has just turned into a stuff hole, and it's it's getting awful. I grew up in in Colorado, and it's just such a beautiful place, and Denver is a beautiful place. And the Independence Institute, and you can find us at thinkfreedom.org, that's thinkfreedom.org, is this great organization that I run. I'm so proud, and we worked so hard to buy a property just a stone's throw from the Capitol where we can walk to the Capitol and work on our mission of lower, uh, government, lower uh, the size of government and, and yep. free the individual. And we bought this place about 10 years ago. And, and like any homeowner, it's, it's our pride and joy. But over the last five years or so, at a growing clip, we've had to clean up people's garbage and filth and needles and bottles and used condom and vomit and urine and excrement. And I just hit a point. At some point, uh, people here uh, use this place as as their hotel room, and they're the rock stars, and we're the ones who have to play maid and clean it up. And it really hit me one day. We've got this beautiful landscaping around. We've got grass around. And people walk their dogs their dogs relieve themselves on our grass, and each and every time they do, some 
dog owner takes out a plastic bag and cleans up after the dog. Yet these humans expect other people to clean up after them. And I just hit it because our city leaders uh, think that it's our job to clean up after these criminals. We've been vandalized. We've had our windows broken. We've been broken into. And it seems as though our city leaders care more for what they call the unhoused than they do the victims of the crime. And so I thought it was time to bring the poop to where it really started, the people at City Hall. I think that's perfectly all right. And by the way, John's Institute is a libertarian student. I always tell people I'm a conservative, but I have a lot of libertarian tendencies. I think most Americans want the government out of their lives. They want maximum freedom for the individual and the, jo- the government to do only the job that it's assigned and constitutionally empowered to do. So your mayor comes out and he says, and I saw the headlines from the papers in Denver saying, the mayor has an ambitious plan. I guess that means it costs $50 million. So anything with that big a price tag, they call ambitious, whether it's just more of the same with a bigger price tag, we really don't know. So would you mind telling me if you think that the mayor, uh, Mike Johnston, has any chance of actually changing the equation? Both you and I understand the basic rules of economics, Lars. What you subsidize, you get more of. What you tax, you get less of. Since 2005, then-Mayor Hickenlooper, now a United States senator, uh, put out a plan to end homelessness in Denver forever, permanently, in 10 years. Remind you that that was in 2005. And so the subsidization of the homeless continued. We threw more and more money, now hundreds of millions of dollars in services and more services and more services and more shelters and more services. And so it's a come to Denver and get free stuff. Uh, And if you lose your tent, we give you a new tent. If you lose your sleeping bag, we give you a new sleeping bag. And where do they lose them? On our property. They just leave them there. We clean it up and they get new stuff. So, yes. Um, the mayor will subsidize more of it, and we will get more of it. In my opinion, he is doing more of the same at a higher velocity. Well, and, and doesn't it... See, don't you wish, I guess, John, I, I, we could all wish we were so rich that every time the sheets on the bed got dirty, you just threw them away and put a brand new, sh- uh, brand new set on. But most of us don't have that kind of money, nor do we think that that's anything but wasteful. We wouldn't want to do it that way. But he's rolled out 50 million bucks in funding to get 1,000 people. Has anybody in Denver done the math? You're basically going to provide $50,000 worth of, of, of stuff to people who are living on the streets uh, with the promise that it'll somehow get them off the streets. And is there even a track record to show that that kind of approach works? Well, that's $50 million more on top of the already $250 million we're spending. Here's, a, here's an interesting question. Riddle me this. Why is it that just down the road in Colorado Springs, a city that's not quite as big as Denver, but still remarkably large, we don't have the same homelessness mess? Why? Because there they enforce the law, yep. that they enforce a camping ban, and when those people are uh, arrested, they're given a choice either go to jail, or they can go to the homeless shelter where they have to stay, and they have to get the treatment to uh, face their addictions, have to find work, have to change their life, 
or they can just leave and go someplace that is much more welcoming of their their lifestyle. Now, where might that be? Yeah, that's just they up the road in places like Denver. And so, this whole idea of housing first only rewards their addictions and their behaviors and their problems, and it is not. It's not helpful to these poor people. There are mentally ill people. There are people who are addicted. There are people who are drugged out. There are people who are psychotic. And yes, we do want to help them as well. And leaving them on the streets is the opposite of charity. It is cruelty. And oh, by the way, the other 99.99% of the people in Denver who are being victimized, being beaten, being robbed by these people, they also deserve some of the mayor's attention, and they deserve to be protected. It's one of the first rules and roles of government. Yeah, I might be libertarian-minded, but I understand there are core functions of government. Public safety has got to be number one. Absolutely right. That's John Caldera. John, thank you very much. He's president of the Independence Institute in Denver, Colorado. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show and check me out on Instagram. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. the white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want to talk about farmers here in a moment, but I want to grab a phone call first. Uh, but let me suggest this to you. We have to support our farmers. And lately, it used to be if you don't support farmers, you won't be eating. But now the question has changed a bit. If you don't support America's farmers, are we all going to end up eating bugs instead? And we'll get to that in just a moment. First, if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Let's start with Paul. Hey, Paul, you heard me talking about New York's governor, uh, Kathy Hochul, and how she's done a complete 180. And I take it that's what you called in about, that she was... Uh, not too long ago, saying, oh, everybody who's in Ill Joe Biden's illegal alien invasion is welcome to come to New York State. And now she's saying, don't even bother coming. There's no room left. Go somewhere else. What do you t what do you think about all that? Yeah. Hi, Lars. Yeah, that is uh, one thing I'd like to make a comment or two about. But I'd like to also uh, make some reference to the uh, Stanford professor that was talking to you a little while ago. Oh, Russell uh, Berman, where, where we were talking about Saudi Arabia wants to get a nuke because 
Uh, Barack Obama made it possible for the Iranian mad mullahs to get a nuke. So now, as predicted, the Saudis will want nukes, and the pretty soon the whole region will be armed with nukes. Exactly, and it, it just brought the thought up to me that uh, former Defense Secretary Gates said about Biden that he had never made a good or correct decision in the previous 40 years. Yep. Just, I'd like to add to that that I don't think he's made a correct decision in that issue or any other issue since he's been president. I would agree with that. I mean, you can go right back and say, what are what are the bad decisions? Well, you pull out of Afghanistan, sir, you know, uh, just just without any kind of preparation at all. Americans get killed. Thousands of Americans get trapped in in behind Taliban lines. So that was a bad decision. You practically invite Putin to invade uh, Ukraine by saying, well, if it's a small invasion, we might have to have some kind of response. You don't uh, do anything to try to to push the Russians back when you could have to keep them out of Ukraine, because I think Joe Biden, frankly, I'm not a big one on conspiracy theories, but think about this. The Biden crime family has made lots of money, allegedly as much as $20 million out of Ukraine. Do you think if Joe saw the potential for kind of inviting an invasion of Ukraine, that that would then uh, make uh, make American aid uh, become uh, it's incumbent for the president to say, well, we're going to help them out. And we said, I think total of $113 billion has been committed to Ukraine. And how much of that is being diverted by the oligarchs who paid the Biden crime family up to $20 million out of Ukraine? I mean, there's a great money-making potential there. It's a tragedy for everybody else, uh, and it's cost the American taxpayers. But what do you think of that theory? Well, it's been a corrupt country for uh, as long as it's been on its own, and even as part of the uh, former USSR. And um, and the, the lack of accountability for the dollars given is really a concern. I mean, I don't see why that can't be part of their agreement. Um, it's just like you say, who knows where the money's going? But but then you get to this, and I, I wish I could say the Latin phrase, but it's who will guard the guardians. If you said we want accountability and transparency and the Ukrainians, I mean, the Ukra- every Ukrainian I've ever interviewed tells me uh, whether they've moved to America or whether they're still in Ukraine, they say, Ukraine is a notoriously corrupt country. So if you say to them, well, we need to have some paperwork to show where the money went. Do you think they're just as capable of making up fake paperwork and fake transparency as anybody who works in the American mob? Well, at least the appearance of accountability would be better than no accountability. (laughs) I I guess unless I mean, it'd be like saying, hey, I think you ripped me off. And somebody, the person you're doing business with says, let me get you the paperwork and show that you haven't been ripped off at all. And you look at all the paperwork and you say, well, this appears to say that my money went to where it was supposed to go. But how do I know that it's true? And you say, you know, it's true because I told you it's true. Well, I agree. And just regarding the Hochul and Eric Adams and that situation, um, the fact that the border situation is becoming undeniably worse uh, is and their virtual signaling attempt up until recently has been no more than that. But I think now just the fact that it's costing them in real terms trying to deal with the situation, but also to try to separate themselves as much as they can from the negative stuff that the rest of the country is starting to pick up on for their own political purposes is a big part of why they're changing their tone. Well, except the one piece of their tone that hasn't changed, Paul, and this is what I'm waiting for. 
because I always cite Frank Rizzo and, you know, a conservative is a liberal who got mugged last night because the, the person is the most warm, fuzzy, oh, the rights of criminals and we shouldn't put people in jail. And then they get mugged. You know, they get beat up and their wallet or their purse gets taken. And the next day, they're sounding as conservative as Donald Trump or Ronald Reagan. Uh, you say, wow, that's a transformation. Yeah, that's what happens when you get beat up and your wallet stolen or your purse stolen. But I'm waiting for Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, or Kathy Hochul to say, President Biden is wrong about this invasion of America. And until they do that, all they're doing is saying, gosh, we want all the illegal aliens to come in the country. We just don't want them to come to our neighborhood. Let's go to Ron. Hey, Ron, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Well, I've noticed that you've had a lot of New York politicians mentioned in your show today, and they all are pretty much pretty much the bottom of the barrel uh, politicians. We'll just put it that way, which makes me want to reply about something else in New York. Mr. Bob Menendez. Oh, uh, New Jersey. You got to put him in the right state. He's in New Jersey, not New York. But hey, six of one, half dozen the other. New York thinks everything west of the Hudson is New Jersey. So from my West Coast perspective, maybe I can do the same to New York and New Jersey. There you go. You know, it, it, it seems like it must be in the water on both sides of those states there, because it, it seems to me that, uh, you know, we're looking at all this corruption, Lars. And if, I, if I'm not mistaken, now correct me now if I'm mistaken here. I, would, I wouldn't want to be incorrect here. No. I believe Mr. Bob Menendez's uh, prior problem was that he went on vacation to have sex with minors in foreign countries? That was, the ac- that was the accurate. There was money involved as well, but there were children that he was accused of molesting. And, and the testimony was, this is a guy who likes very, very young girls. Translate that as, this is a pedophile. And I think he's got that problem as well. And by the way, think about the Democrats that have that problem. And are there some Republicans who've done bad things as well? Absolutely right. But the Democrats seem to have, have cornered the market on pedophilia and, and corruption. Uh, the Republicans, I, I'm for putting all of them in jail. If they've broken the law, they go to jail. If they've touched a child, they go to jail. And believe me, that perv in the White House who's always putting his hands on adult women and children of both genders, pervy Joe's got to go, too. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google. Yeah, he's everywhere. The Lars Larson Podcast. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, your kids have likely already heard about the attacks in Israel, whether from their peers or social media. But while in class, should they be getting teachings from a group that is linked to Hamas? On that note, I thought we'd talk to Ryan Walters. He heads up the Oklahoma State School System uh, as the superintendent. He's a former U.S. history teacher, and he's welcome on this show anytime. How are you doing, uh, Ryan? 
I'm, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I'd be doing better if care wasn't in any classroom in the country, though. And, I mean, it's unbelievable to see how the left has pushed their way into curriculum, into classrooms across the state, red state, blue state, but to have care linked to a mosque inside classrooms. And, frankly, now they're out attacking me because, heaven forbid, I actually want real history taught in the classroom. I don't want leftism being pushed on our kids. But uh, that's, that's the reality where we are today. You know, just so people know, I mean, I've been talking about CARE, I think, as long as they've existed, is the Council on American-Islamic Relations. And in a lot of ways, Ryan, I compare them, they're like the Sinn Féin of the Irish Troubles to the Irish Republican Army. The Republican Army, uh, the IRA, would go out and blow up a tavern or kill some innocent people, and then Sinn Féin would come out and run members for the parliament and be the, fr the front people, the spokespeople for that group. CARE effectively ends up being, I think, the front man or the front organization for a bunch of terrorists. Right, and we've seen it throughout history, right? You have the propaganda arm that, that goes out and tries to always muddy the waters and go, oh, well, we're actually attacking women and children. It's justified. It's really their fault. It, it, there's really something more complex going on here. It's more complicated. You know, that Israel, America are always the bad guys in this prism. That, that CARE creates. And, you know, you just look at all the groups that line up. Here in Oklahoma, we've got the teachers union lining up with CARE, lining up with Antifa, and you see all the same groups that are causing this um, uh, un unrest of society join up lock arms to overthrow our society. And that's exactly what we see going on here. And the, and the horrible thing about it, too, is they focus on our kids. There's no better example of how confused they've got young people than young people out actually advocating for Hamas and, and, and uh, you know, insulting and belittling the fact that Israel should even exist. Well, even late this afternoon, Ryan, I'm talking to Ryan Walters, who's superintendent of the Oklahoma State school system, uh, a Cornell University professor, as an example of what your kids are being fed, whether it's a private college or a state college, he called the Hamas terrorist attack that has taken more than 1,400 lives, he called it exhilarating and exciting. I mean, most of us called it horrifying, but but the, the people in academics, apparently of a, a certain political stripe, have decided, no, this is this is exciting stuff. I mean, these are these are sick people, aren't they? Yeah, sick is exactly how I would put it. It's absolutely disgusting. And you see it when you listen to the way the young people are talking um, on these college campuses. You have professors that are filling their heads with this nonsense. And you listen to them, and it's obvious there's no critical thinking going on. It's obvious there's no diverse diversity of opinions going on in these college campuses because they just say these meaningless platitudes that Israel is bad, Palestine is good, Hamas is good. You know, you look at these people on these college campuses. They're not professors. They're not looking at, at education of the young people. What they're looking to do is overthrow an America that they hate. They hate America with a passion. You can hear it dripping in every sort of analysis they put out there. And everything is meant to undermine American values, undermine American traditions, and, and tear families apart. And you see it, and we can't uni unite when we're not even telling kids about our principles. Our principles used to unite this country. But instead, what they've done is they flipped it on its head, claimed that America has no founding principles. America is based in evil. Our allies are evil. We're always on the wrong side of things. You can't bring people together in America 
with radical leftists pushing that kind of vile, evil um, mentality amongst uh, college-age kids. Well, it's even, uh, I mean, to some extent, Ryan, in my neck of the woods, our main broadcast studios are in Portland, Oregon, Portlandia, about as far left as you get. And the county around Portland, the biggest county, is Multnomah County. And their county commission got into a big fight. They couldn't even come up with a statement, some kind of statement about what had happened in that terrorist attack. Because some of the members, and, and remember, these are all to the left of AOC, these members on this county commission. I mean, they're about as far left as anybody can get. And they said, well, we have to say something about how bad this was toward Israel. And other members of the commission said, no. We won't say that. And I've seen so many liberal institutions find themselves unable to say anything good about Israel uh, or anything bad about the Hamas terrorists. And I thought, you've seen people murdered, slaughtered. And now we're finding out that the terrorists literally said, let's target our attacks on kibbutzes, you know, communities, um, and we're going to go after children first. We're going to specifically target schools and activity centers where we're likely to find families and children. And you think, that's just unabashed evil. Can you condemn that? And you see people like uh, Rashida Tlaib and, and Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar saying, now, I can't say anything bad about those people. This This is lunacy. It is lunacy, and when you look at, you know, your college professor saying things and college president saying things like that. You, you go, why are we paying for these institutions? They're taking taxpayer dollars. You've got good conservative people uh, with traditional American values that are paying uh, tens of thousands of dollars uh, to these universities to continue them going, and they continue to push this just absolute evil uh, mentality on, onto our kids. And, and, and you want to look at it into a couple things. Number one, they should quit getting this funding. We should absolutely start telling them if they're going to continue to spew anti-Americanism, these funders should cut that funding stream off. They should band together and say, listen, we've given this university all this money over the years. We're not doing it anymore. You're undermining the country that we love. And number two, if this isn't just the best example to end tenure today, I don't know what is. These professors shouldn't have tenure. When they go out and spew this kind of nonsense, they should be fired on the spot. They should be run out of those universities. And we've got to take these, these institutions back. Um, but, but there is no reason these people shouldn't be fired on the spot for saying radical things like backing up terrorist attacks on women and children in Israel. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, maybe I go beyond what I think is in your lane. But is the superintendent of schools for an entire state like Oklahoma, is, there any, is it politic for you to put out a statement and say, this is the point of view of our school system, uh, that we, de- we decry the terrorist attacks on innocent people? And we understand the need of Israel to defend itself. And we demand that the Hamas terrorists stop doing what they're doing. And then just say to the teachers in your system, if you disagree with that, if you think Hamas is the good guys, you can't talk to the kids about that till you talk to us. Tell us why you would believe that. And then maybe you sort out some of the teachers you actually want in the classrooms from the ones you want as far away from a classroom as possible. Is that something that's even even possible for a person in your position to do? You know, I, yes, it is. You know, and that's one of the things we've looked at from, you know, I, I put out a, a memo to every school district last week. I asked them to hold a minute of silence for Israel. And if they want to pray, I even put out a sample prayer of, listen, we are going to pray for, for Israel and their safety and their right to defend themselves. Yep. This is what Amer- Oklahomans stand behind Israel. We want our kids to hear this with clarity. There is moral clarity on this issue. 
Israel has a right to live and exist, and now they absolutely have a right to defend themselves. And it should be crystal clear for our young people to understand there is evil in this world, and we are going to stand with those who are right. We are going to stand with the innocent. Um, and so, uh, you know, yeah, I put that out every school district last week and said that this is what we need to be doing. Because Did you get any blowback at all from teachers who said, no, we have to talk about the righteous cause of Hamas? I haven't, just from the media. <laughs> right now, it's just been the media <laughs> well, that acts all upset about it. Of, co- of course you're going to get that from mainstream reporters because they're all safely in America. Watch while their point of view changes if we end up getting a terrorist attack in this country. And we've already seen the head of the FBI warn we may be up for that. That's Ryan Walters, the Oklahoma State School Superintendent and former U.S. history teacher. I know that a lot of you want to comment. We'll get to those comments and calls coming up in just a moment. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Kids. political climate. He's the steamroller. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Monday. It's my pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails in a moment. I got to tell you something. There was a time, and I know that Professor Russell Berman remembers it, when America and the rest of the world took the view that the mad mullahs of Tehran, the leaders of Iran, uh, were not allowed to have a nuclear program at all. Not a nuclear program for power, for electricity, not a nuclear program certainly to develop the uh, components they need to be able to make nuclear weapons. Uh, and then all of a sudden it changed, largely during the Obama administration. And I know Professor Berman will be happy to correct me if I'm wrong about this, and I'll be happy to be corrected. But now we've got a, 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 an Iran that is on the cusp of having nuclear weapons of its own. And so, of course, we've got the Saudi Arabians who are saying, well, if Iran gets nukes, then we're going to get nukes as well. And all of this is in the hands of a guy from Delaware who uh, other knowledgeable people have said never got a foreign policy decision in his entire career correct. Uh, Professor Berman, welcome back. Good to, good to speak with you, Lars. Unfortunately, I can't correct you. You have it right. Professor Berman is the Walter Haas Professor of Humanities at Stanford, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, co-chair of the Working Group on Islamism and the International Order. And frankly, should we should we blame the Saudis if they say, well, if Iran gets a nuke, we're going to need to get nukes as well. And we've got the Joe Biden administration, which is, I, I guess, trying to cut a deal with Saudi Arabia, but also trying to cut a deal with Iran at the same time. And it sounds like none of it is working, which shouldn't surprise us on Joe. Listen, I mean, there's, there's a lot that's going on in, in the region, um, and it's complicated by the incompetence of the Biden administration. The Biden administration is indeed trying to continue the policy of the Obama administration to um, be soft on the mullahs and effectively pave their way to a nuclear weapon. 
At the same time, they're trying, the Biden administration is trying to see if the Abraham Accords could be extended and lead to a rapprochement between our allies, Israel and, and Saudi Arabia, which would be an American national interest. Biden administration is likely to fumble that ball, but this may come to pass, mainly because it would be good for Israel and good for, good for Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Biden administration thinks that it can control what's happening in the region. Um, unfortunately or fortunately, it can't. Uh, there are dynamics going on there that are out uh, beyond, beyond the control of uh, Secretary Blinken. It's a complicated game, and the Biden administration is not doing a good job. No, and, and I guess what I wonder about is the Biden administration, Joe Biden apparently wanted a deal to bring back the uh, was the JCPOA. It's not a treaty. Right. It's not a law. It's not been signed off on by the U.S. Senate as treaties are required to be. Instead, it's this piece of paper that Obama and Vice President Biden came up with uh, without bothering to ask the people's representatives about it. And frankly, I don't blame the Saudis. If, you're, if your near neighbor has nuclear weapons and you don't arm up, you may have real problems. And, and I wouldn't blame them. But how did we, uh, can we take a step back from that and tell me, how did we go from Iran isn't allowed to have a nuclear program of any kind, way, shape, or form, to, well, of course, they're going to have a nuclear program ostensibly for peaceful purposes, but realistically, we know they're going to make bombs out of it. How did we how did we make that transformation and why? Well, this was the transformation that um, was uh, pursued by the Obama administration because the Obama administration and I believe large parts of the Democratic foreign policy policy establishment are effectively sympathetic to the Iranian regime. They're sympathetic to the view of the world, according to which. Western imperialism, U.S. imperialism are the source of all evil, uh, and uh, they want to make good with the Iranians because it is, as Gene Kirkpatrick once said, it's all our fault. We blame America first. That's why Iran has to get a nuclear weapon, and that's why the Obama administration pursued the JCPOA. As you correctly pointed out, it is not formally a treaty, although it is of such a stature that it should have been, but it was not a treaty because the Obama administration would have had to bring it to the Senate, and therefore, and it would not have gone past the Senate, and therefore, they, they found a workaround. So, yeah, uh, there's, a, there's a threat uh, uh, implicit in Iran acquiring nuclear weapons, but there's also a threat to our constitutional procedures by the Democratic administrations, Obama and Biden, trying to circumvent the Senate. That's also a threat to the United States. Well, see, that's one of the things that's all, I mean, I think the people who founded our country were geniuses and the, the documents they wrote were geniuses. And, and I think they said, oh, the president wants to cut a deal with some other country. He can do that. He, she can do that anytime he wants. He just has to bring it to the Senate. For the life of me, I never understood when the Republicans were still a majority in the Senate, why they didn't haul that JCPOA up and say, this is clearly a treaty. Let's vote on it as a treaty. We haven't been asked to vote on it as a treaty. Let's vote on it. And we know how the vote's going to go. It's going to go down. And then we'll just say it's, it's inoperative because it was a treaty. It walked like a treaty. It quacked like a treaty. We voted on it. We rejected it. And just like Kyoto, you throw it on the trash pile. Don't you? 
Well, since it was not a treaty, it was effectively a, a version of an executive order. Um, there's a little bit more than that, but it was an action by the by the White House, uh, not by the Senate. Uh, and therefore, President Trump could and wisely could um, uh, uh, take us Kill. out of it. <laughs> Biden administration has been trying to get us back into it, but it's not working uh, because the Iranians um, effectively want a mea culpa from the side of the United States, which the Biden administration can't accept publicly, especially as we're going into an election year. So, Professor, when we've got a region, uh, and I get to use a $5 word, that's a whole lot more fraught than probably any other place on the planet, and now we've got Israel long, I mean, I'm fairly certain they're, they're armed with nukes. The Iranians are on the cusp of it, uh, and now the Saudis say, well, then we're going to have to acquire nukes. Now we've got one of these really hotbed kind of regions of the world where a whole bunch of the parties are armed with nukes and everybody who doesn't have one probably ought, you know, is, is thinking we should get one or two. What, what, where does that go? Well, then we'll have a, uh, an arms race in the, <clears throat> in the Middle East. Um, and the, 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 this was initiated by the Obama administration effectively green-lighting the nuclearization of Iran. Now, the Saudis, yes, the Saudis want to have uh, the uh, power um, that would, that would um, deter the Iranians. Uh, the United States is not going to give the Saudis... Um, uh, nuclear weapons, but there are other ways to get nuclear weapons. Pakistan has nuclear weapons, and Pakistan is effectively part of this region too. If one cuts it slightly differently, we're we're the, the, the more Washington has cold-shouldered Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, the more we have pushed Saudi Arabia toward China, which could also be a source for nuclear technology. The, um, the, 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 the region can't be controlled definitively from Washington. We should, we should be wary of an arrogance of power, as uh, Senator Fulbright said years ago. But the United States can play a leadership role. We're un unfortunately, we're not doing that now. No, and, and sadly, in a region where uh, Joe Biden said, I'll turn the Saudis into the pariahs they ought to be, and then, of course, has to backtrack on that, uh, when when it, it's very clear he wants to go hat in hand and ask them for some more oil because of problems he created at home. I can't imagine a better way to show the Saudis and everybody else in the region that America is being run by somebody who's not terribly bright. Professor, it's a pleasure. That's Professor Russell Berman. He's at Stanford University, also senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Back in just a moment. Glad to get your calls. 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Just listen for five minutes. You'll feel better. More with Lars Larson right now to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Monday. Always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Uh, send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. We always put up an interesting question every day. This one has to do with hospitals and terrorist command centers. 
But I want to ask you about this. If your child wants to go by a different name and a different pronoun at school, should you, the parent, be kept in the dark about that? Terry Schilling joins me now, who's president of the American Principals Project. Terry, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Lars. Love coming on. Thank you, sir. You know, at the beginning of this hour, I actually got a call. We always put naysayers to the head of the line. There was a young lady by the name of Joy who called me up and said, well, she just didn't believe that this was going on in public schools in America. And I said, oh, you know, oh, to the contrary. I've heard from teachers. I hear from students. I, I've seen some of the documents that the schools themselves have put out, memos from the superintendent and directives to teachers saying exactly this, that you're going to tell kids about LGBTQ issues, number one. Number two, if a student comes to you, and it depends on the school and it depends on the political environment they're in, which state they're in, but they may well say, a teacher may well say, we'll, we'll keep your secret away from your parents and not tell them. This is going on in a lot of places, isn't it? It's going on all across the country, Lars, and frankly, a lot of it is driven by the federal government. You know, we've talked about this before, but the federal government gives out $6 trillion every single year, and a big portion of that is through our schools. Well, those dollars don't come for free. Those are all, you know, tied to strengths. And those strengths are diversity programs, equity programs, inclusion programs. And that means uh, protecting children from parents, right? So anyone that's out there trying to say that this isn't happening, you're not even listening to the arguments of the other side because they are actively arguing openly uh, that parents are a threat to their children in many such cases and that they should never be told uh, or outed to their parents uh, by the school. That that's, a cri- that's a criminal act, basically, and they're, they're making it a criminal act all across the country. Well, the funny thing about it, Terry, is that, I mean, I've been doing talk radio for over 25 years now, and I, I can tell you there were times where you'd question, why didn't the state bureaucracy take these kids away from these abusive parents? On the other hand, there were a, a number a number of cases where school kids had been taken away for seemingly no reason and come to find out some overzealous bureaucrat had gone overboard the other direction as well. So it does happen, but I, I just wonder... How in the world did we get to the point where people so easily accept the idea that some parents or most parents cannot be trusted making decisions for their kids? Now, I know that there are people who say, well, I remember there was a parent who decided this, you know, to do this or that or the other thing with their kids. Yeah, those are the those are this tiny, tiny fraction uh, of parents who treat their kids, their kids badly. The vast majority of parents do a fantastic job. And yet when the schools and to some extent politicians pump out this idea that no, no, parents can't be trusted. Most of them are evil. Most of them will contradict a child who wants to change genders or whatever. They, I guess they figure they, they don't even have to prove that they're factually right. People just seem to have a dim, some people have a dim view of parents. I don't. I think most parents are great. No, and that is the reality, is there are exceptions to every rule. But the rule is that no one, no one loves, knows, or serves their children better or, or more than the parents. Right. They are trying to convince us of an enormous lie. And that lie is that 26 year old, brand new, out of college educated, 
childless women and men uh, who are on the LGBT spectrum wherever um, that they know and love these kids more than their own parents. They have them for less than a year, Lars. They're in these classrooms. You have, a t- you have most teachers for less than a year, and they want to tell you that they know better. They don't. This, is, this only goes one way, by the way. When a parent is teaching their children about Christianity, they, they're against that. But if a, if a parent is trying to give their kids sex changes because they've also been fooled and taken in by this transgender industry, this billion-dollar industry, well, they support parental rights there, just not to raise your kid as a Christian. It only goes one side, and that side is destruction of the next generation. And by the way, your, your point about them only having them for a year, but there we're talking about a school year. So we're saying you have these kids six, maybe seven hours a day, five days of the week, which in every state I've checked recently, that's less than 180 days a year, meaning they have them in class less than one half of all the year, days in a year, less than one half of 365, and you only have them for six or seven hours of that, and you're only required under your contract to teach them five hours of that, and you're splitting your attention among 20 or maybe 25 different kids, but you can give them the kind of personalized attention that their mom and dad don't give to two or three kids at home. <laughs> Tell me how that works. Less than half the year, uh, you know, and, and less than a quarter of the day. Say it's six hours. That's a quarter of every day. Mom and dad put them to bed. Mom and dad take care of them when they're sick. Mom and dad, you know, help them buy their clothing or advise them on their uh, various issues that kids run into. And you, the teacher, have them split up among a class of 25 for six hours every day, less than half the year. Right? Bingo. Bingo. But it, it's it, what, we're, what we're seeing is not it's it's not an assault on parental rights. What we're seeing is actually an assault on everything that we know and hold to be true and near and dear and important. Right. That's that's what the real war is. It's not on parental rights. Parents have all types of rights to transition. Their kids. You know, they, they talk about these kids in abusive homes and they're they're worried about sending them home. Well, they're never worried about the parents who come out both as transgender and get sex changes. And now mom is dad and dad is mom. Frankly, I think you and I would probably agree that that's, that's probably not the best situation. No, not, not, not only not the household. best, Terry, that's abusive. Can you imagine how you talk about kids being confused? How confused are you when mom becomes dad and dad becomes mom? Right. But here's the other thing. What about the parents that are dressing up their little boys as drag queens? Is that an abusive household? No, it's not. Yes. And that is because, well, you know, no, right, right. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a very abusive household. But to them, that's a healthy and intolerant environment that every child should be raised in. Neil, I'm sorry, Lars, they're saying the quiet parts out loud. They actually are now starting to say that trans is what's normal, that gender is a, is a, is a man-made construct that is really against our humanity, and that trans and the binary, or sorry, the non-binary uh, spectrum of gender, that's what's normal. That's what's good. This is not an assault on um, on par- parental rights. It's an assault on men and women. It's an assault on the family. It's an assault on humanity. They are trying to reshape humanity in their image. And let me tell you, it's a really terrible and ugly image. And it's not going well. That's Terry Schilling. Terry, thank you. Terry is the president of the American Principles Project. It's a pleasure to be with you. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. 
The Lars Larson Show. When it comes to health, we're all on a... Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. And now... Lars. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And if you want to call in, we'll get to your calls in a bit. But we've been talking to Dr. Greg Nye about some of the really strange things that have happened. And we've been talking to Dr. Nye. I love the fact that when we talk to him, who is a naturopathic physician, licensed acupuncturist, but he, he specializes in cancer. And he's been doing some of the studies. And when we first talked to Dr. Nye, and he said, listen, uh, we think this mRNA China virus shot, you know, the jab, uh, the one that was experimental uh, and uh, wasn't tested on very many people at all before uh, the powers that be said, we want billions of people to take this. And then we want to take the booster and booster after booster after booster. And when Dr. Nye said, we're starting to run into what he was calling turbo cancers. And then within, I think, about six months, I started to see the mainstream medical media. You know, the, the big medical journals were also publishing pieces about turbo cancers saying, well, where are these things coming from? Cancers that come out of the blue, they work very, very quickly, and they hurt people very, very quickly. So I decided we'd get Dr. Nye back on because he's got a brand new study as well. Dr. Nye, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Lars. Yeah. So so if I said anything wrong there, feel free to correct me, but I've really valued your research and we'll tell people that if you want the links to go read his research online, we'll be glad to do that. Um, and I know that you have uh, quite a fight to get published by some of the mainstream journals, but you wrote that we report on an aggressive infiltrating metastatic and ultimately lethal basaloid type carcinoma. I think I got all the pronunciations on that right. Arising shortly after the mRNA vaccination for COVID-19. Um, would you mind sharing with my audience some of what you're finding and whether or not the mainstream medical field is going to finally say maybe we screwed people up with this jab? Yeah. Um, all right. So quickly, kind of what this case study is, um, this was a gentleman who had a basal cell carcinoma uh, on his uh, upper back. And these are typically, they don't do anything. Um, those are the things that you go once a year and you get them frozen off. And they, unless you leave them for years, they don't really do anything. Uh, but this guy, he got his first jab. That was a Pfizer shot. Four days later, he experienced extreme pain in the right side of his face, same size side as the shot. Uh, it progressed. A uh, short story is that it then he developed paralysis, and it was thought to be Bell's palsy. This was about two months after the shot. Uh, and then the palsy just progressed, and then a tumor started growing out of his ear, and and eventually it was found, oh, yeah, this is a metastasis from a basal cell that has invaded the facial nerve. And it, the tumor just kind of consumed the side of his face, and ultimately it was, was deadly for him. 
so it was, I mean, you can't establish causation with certainty, but this was so obviously related. Uh, I mean, it's hard to say that it wasn't. And so, yeah, this paper is now kind of one of many that are coming out, and it's you can't really hide this anymore. I mean, there's obviously an attempt to kind of look the other, try to get people to look the other way and not blame the the elephant in the room. But these are, this topic is mainstream now, at least, you know, within certain circles of the mainstream. So yes, this was something, you know, we had predicted it in our first papers. We said, this is probably why it's going to happen. And then it's just sort of this, uh, this horrendous, revealing that, yes, this is happening now. These are not only basal cells becoming aggressive, but, I mean, I just spoke with a patient this week, early 30s, just diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer. I mean, that's that's It is early 30s? Early 30s, stage 4 lung cancer. I mean, it's just, this stuff is not normal. And I think more and more people are... are seeing this in people around them that people they know or colleagues uh it's they're not going to be able to keep a lid on this for too much longer no and in fact i got a call just a short while ago from a gentleman who said look i i had the shot i had the jab and then all of a sudden i've got blood clots in my lungs and they're not in my family line you know there's not my medical history there's no other indications for it but i want to make sure people really accept, really understand the import so here you've got these basal type carcinomas and you say they're normally you know they're nothing you know they they normally don't do anything they don't metal i mean there are some cancers you walk in the doctor says you got this and we're operating on you tomorrow or this afternoon and then there are other things say oh you got a growth probably should have it removed but you know in most cases it doesn't do anything as 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 you said unless you leave it there for years and all of a sudden these otherwise pussycat kind of cancers are turning into raging tiger cancers and nobody knows why except the one common factor throughout Earth's population right now for a lot of people, not me, I didn't take the jab, uh, is, well, we shot everybody up with an experimental vaccine. Could that have something to do with it? And as you said, can you definitively say this caused that? No. But if you say that's the one new factor that's been introduced, and now all of a sudden we're seeing a whole bunch of these, and you called them turbo cancers, I've called them turbo cancers, the reason you're calling them that, they come on fast, they act much more quickly than a typical cancer would, and they sometimes kill people. Is that accurate? That's exactly right. And, yes, so we can't say for sure that it's these two are causal-related. But another aspect of these cancers that is, that is concerning is that they're not responding to the standard kinds of therapies that have been used for cancers. So they're becoming... The new cancers are resistant. You know, that's like a double punch in the gut. If, in fact, the kinds of mechanisms that we have described in our papers are happening, then it would make sense that the cancers that come from the shots are then going to be more resistant to the treatments that are used. Is part of that the, I mean, I think the phrase is impairment of T-cell immune activation. At least I know T-cells are about how you fight off disease. If that gets impaired by the shot, then your body lacks the ability to fight back? Yeah, there are. So, there, yes, you're right in that. There are multiple mechanisms that the, the shots impact our ability to prevent cancers from progressing. And not only, you know, it's not only that they prevent things, but 
on one hand, they are doing that. They're preventing a lot of cancer fighting. And on in another way, they're actively promoting, which is kind of a whole different thing, uh, promoting growth of cancers that might be present. And so it, yeah, it makes sense that we would see turbo cancers or these very aggressive cancers showing up in younger people moving faster. It's like it's it's like it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. It's like eventually you see, yeah, this is and this and, and is all of this against the backdrop of the administration, the Biden administration saying we gotta get everybody jabbed again before this fall. Doctor Nye, we're gonna put up the link to the papers, to the studies, and this interview. We'll put it on my website at LarsLarson.com. That's Dr. Greg Nye, who's a, well, naturopathic physician who specializes in naturopathic oncology, cancer treatment. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Control. Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I never thought that we would see America's college campuses overrun by protests in favor of a terrorist organization. And yet that's exactly what we're seeing. And it appears at this point, there's only one state that's actually taking action against that. And that is the state of Florida and it's Governor Ron DeSantis. So we got Emily Sturge on, who is with Campus Reform. She's a correspondent and a student at the University of Florida. Emily, thanks for taking the time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Having me. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well tonight. And look, there have been protests on American college campuses probably since day one of one kind or another. But have we ever really seen uh, a phenomena like this where students are demonstrating in favor of a terrorist organization that many of us are convinced they're not even aware of what Hamas is all about and what it's capable of? I've definitely never seen anything like this. And I'm a college student at the University of Florida, and I'm seeing this violent behavior firsthand. I attended the quote-unquote Day of Resistance event held by a group called Students for Justice in Palestine. I went to this event on my campus, and let me tell you, it was extremely nerve-wracking. My campus knew that this was dangerous, radical ideas being spread, and my campus came prepared. They equipped the scene with officers inside and outside the building. They had police dogs present, and we had to go through metal detectors to even get inside the building. So campuses know that these are dangerous, radical ideas, and I'm happy that my campus took precautions. I guess what I think about is this, Emily, and I forgive me for this comparison, but I think it's appropriate. If I try to think of another organization in America that's in American politics that might have as evil a beliefs as, say, Hamas does, which is they want to destroy the state of Israel. They want to they want all the Jews gone or dead or both. Um, and, and you say, OK, what kind of groups have been like that before? Maybe 
the SDS back in the 60s, or maybe the Klan, you know, has has beliefs and attitudes um, and and you're supporting actions like that. But other than that, and, and I would think in American politics, usually any group or any individual, uh, either one who advocates for killing people, for driving people out of out of their own country, things like that, you'd say, well, you know, we're not going to be like you. I'm not going to make Hitler comparisons because that's uh, Hitler was a mass murderer and that was a, a, of a different nature. But but the Klan, you know, the Klan that says we don't like those people because of the color of their skin or because they're Jewish. So we want them gone. Okay, Hamas and the Palestinians say we don't like those people because of their faith and we want them gone. Uh, and they suggest using violence against them to get them gone. I can't believe that left wing college students are supporting something like that that seems so anti American and, and antith- antithetical to the things that most Americans believe. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's completely anti-American. And let me tell you, it's sickening to see college students across America that are so out of touch with reality that they're literally attempting to rationalize. And some students are they're celebrating Hamas kidnapping children and raping women and killing civilians. But unfortunately, I, as a college student, I'm not even surprised. This is exactly the behavior that the left is teaching students to have on college campuses. And the left is celebrating this radicalism on college campuses because they're using it as a way to push Marxist principles on impressionable students to indoctrinate the next generation of voters. You know this. This is exactly how the left stays in power. They're indoctrinating students with their values. And we see this in course curriculums, for example, with DEI or CRT or LGBTQ. And the list goes on of these alphabet soup terms that the left is indoctrinating young adults like myself with in our college classrooms. We know this is how the left gains power. And these uh, pro-Palestinian protests, they're unfortunately just another example of this. Well, and do these students, do you think... I mean, every time something like this comes up, Emily, I think of Martin Niemöller. So he's the guy who he was a pastor in Germany, and uh, and and he wrote this famous little uh, you know uh, piece of prose where he said, first they came for the socialists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a socialist, and then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I was not a trade unionist, and then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I was not a Jew, and then they came for me, and there was nobody left to speak for me. Do they understand? That if if you say it's legitimate to behead people, to burn bodies, to slaughter innocent people, uh, if they do that, that those kinds of actions taken against one group or you side with the other group, they may end up and probably will come back on you at some point. Do they get that or not? No, unfortunately not. And you're absolutely right. We know history repeats itself and we know that. What could happen to one group could happen to another group in the future. Um, this student organization in particular, their national leadership, it's called Students for Justice in Palestine. And this organi- organization is explicitly endorsing the actions of Hamas and their armed attacks on Israel. And they're telling students on college campuses that they need to eradicate Jewish voices on their campus. This is a that's a massive threat to eradicate Jewish voices on campus. And so as a college student myself, I'm seeing that being said to other students. That could be said to me one day. So, yes, of course, I am going to speak out about this. And this is a particular threat to my university. The University of Florida has the largest population of Jewish students of all the public universities in the United States. 
And many students here feel threatened by this radical student group meeting on our campus and having such radical ideas on a campus that's supposed to be safe. We're supposed to feel comfortable going to class. And unfortunately, many students don't feel that. So, yes, I, I do think that this is something that I, myself, and other students do need to talk about and stand up because this could be me. I'm talking to Emily Sturge, who's a correspondent for Campus Reform and a student, as she mentioned, at the University of Florida. So what's the DeSantis administration doing? Because I'm sure there are going to be people who object to this. But frankly, student organizations are, are organized on college campuses uh, under the auspices of the university. And and I guess if if you want to have a, a student organization, you can, but you apply and, and universities regularly and routinely say yes. And they also say no to certain organizations. Uh, what's Ron DeSantis doing now? So Governor DeSantis ordered Florida universities to terminate pro-Palestinian student organizations. And after learning about what these pro-Palestinian student organizations are talking about, I agree with DeSantis' actions, and I believe this is the leadership we need to keep radical student organizations under control. The National Leadership of Students for Justice in Palestine, they created a quote-unquote toolkit for their campus group. And this toolkit explicitly tells Palestinian students that they are part of the movement against Israel, and, and they're telling students that armed resistance is justified. This organization is calling on students to dismantle Zionism on campus and to eradicate Jewish voices on U.S. campuses. And this is a huge problem. Students for Justice in Palestine, they're violating Florida law by providing support and resources to advance literal terrorist activity. This violence, it does not belong belong on college campuses, and I don't want to see this on my campus. When students are fearful of this group existing on campus, we know there's a problem, and I'm happy to see our governor, Governor DeSantis, standing up to this. And and by the way, you know that in in politics over the last few years, we've seen people call out conservatives. Uh, they called out Sarah Palin because she ran a campaign ad that had a uh, you know had a crosshairs on certain counties that they were going to try and you know turn from Democrat to Republican. And they said, "My God, the fact that you put this crosshairs on there, it suggests violence." You know, they suggested that Donald Trump's uh, speech on January sixth was inspiring violence, even though he never said any such thing. But they said, well, if you read between the lines, that's what he was doing. And yet this is actually advocating for violence. And when you say cancel those voices on campus, other than simply saying we don't want to hear what you have to say, you're suggesting to students act violently toward other students if necessary to silence those voices. I don't think I'm overreading that. You could write a rule and say any campus organization that advocates for violence or advocates for, you know, for silencing other people, we're simply not going to support it. And it wouldn't have to apply just to the pro-Hamas uh, organizations. It could apply for it to any organization that behaves in that way. Emily, keep up the good work and stay safe. That's Emily Sturge from Campus Reform and also a student at the University of Florida. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show and check me out on Instagram. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Try that in a small town. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday. Always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails. I'm not a fan of electric cars. I'm not against the technology, period. I just don't think it makes sense, practical sense, for most people in America to own and use an electric car uh, replacing their gasoline or diesel-powered car for a whole lot of practical reasons. And I've always said, if they ever get to the point where they've cleaned up the technology, it pencils out well, it's economically competitive with gasoline and diesel cars, then let the marketplace decide. People can say, I'll, I'll drive an electric instead of a gas or a diesel. That's perfectly all right. But having the government push this disastrous policy on us, is it's going to be a disaster for Americans. As the government has decided, we will force you to drive if you're going to drive a car at all, by about 2035, you will not be allowed to buy a gasoline or diesel car. It must be an electric. So when I saw the story at Real Clear Investigations by our friend John Morosky, who's an investigative journalist, I decided we've got to get him on because he's done a deep dive into what's what it's going to cost to build out the infrastructure to support this foolish public policy. John, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on. Hey, John, you've said in this story that the cost of all of this is about to absolutely explode, where most technologies, as they become mature in America, costs go down, availability goes up, you know, and, and things become more available and less costly. That's not going to happen with electric cars and the charging required to support them? Uh, if it's going to happen, it will happen down the road. It's not happening right now because it's still in the very early stages. And so California is our kind of bellwether we could look to California on basically a lot of progressive policies, whether that's, you know, gender transitions or affirmative action or reparations, and in this case, electric cars. So California has uh, committed uh, at least $14 billion to building out an uh, electric charging infrastructure because they were the first state to ban the sale of new electric cars effective 2035. There's at least half a dozen other states have followed California's lead and more will follow. So you can just look to California to see how this is going to play out. So it's a, the, um, you have to pay people to buy the cars. You have to pay the, uh, uh, a rebate on the car. You have to discount the cars. And you have to pay the charging companies, uh, basically pay them almost 100% of the cost of installing the chargers because they have to install the chargers in advance of people owning the cars or people won't buy the cars. It's a, it's a chicken and egg problem. And so these, they have to put in this infrastructure first to entice people to buy the cars which they'll be required to buy under a mandate uh, in 2035. So $14 billion, at least so far, uh, and the U.S. government is also committing billions of dollars. And so it's just a huge, huge investment to do something that uh, basically to start or create a market that doesn't exist yet. Well, and you've also said EVs are booby-trapped, and I like the, the comparison, with a host of inconveniences and trade-offs that don't seem to be working out well. And it sounds like we're learning more about it, you know, where people might have thought, well, we know what an electric car is. It has a battery, you plug it in, you charge it up, and you go where you want to go. But are there things about electric cars that we never realized until they started running them out in, in, in quantity? You know, what, what you're told about electric cars is that they require no maintenance because they don't have oil or they don't have, you know, engines. Uh, the charging is super cheap. It's, a, you know, like it's just a fraction of the cost of, of buying gasoline because you charge at home or you go to your workplace and your employer gives you that uh, amenity for free. 
Um, and that may be the case for the small percentage of people who live close, uh, who can commute to work, who have charging at work, who own a home, who own a garage, who can install a charger in their garage. But the uh, inconveniences of electric cars are, are less, you know, are, are not so publicized. And people have heard of these. I mean, one obviously is range anxiety. If you get off of that uh, predictable um, a route where, you, where the chargers are in place, where the charging companies have installed chargers, uh, where a lot of people are driving, if you're getting off of the main roads, uh, you, you're going to enter into areas where you have less access to chargers. These chargers are not all consolidated on one app, so you have to download multiple apps to access multiple networks. Um, so, and Tesla is beginning to open up its network, uh, and so the process of standardization is beginning to happen. I suppose at some point it, all these chargers will be on one app and you'll be able to find them or your car will know where they are. But right now that's not the case. You have to do a lot of preparation and planning. It's not like you just get into a car and you'll see, you know, you'll see a gas station. You, you, have, to, you, know, you have to look use different apps. Um, and then, you know, people have heard about the explode, exploding uh, lithium-ion batteries, and people are beginning to learn now that these cars are not a, uh, net zero cars. In fact, when you buy them, they are, you know, they are net zero negative. You have to drive them for several years at least to catch up to a, a gasoline engine car in terms of its emissions. It has a much larger carbon footprint because of the mining of the mi- minerals. Um, and my neighbor just bought a Tesla. He loves his Tesla. And I asked him just the other day, I said, did you buy it for environmental reasons? He goes, oh, heck no, there's no environment benefit. This thing, <laughs> the mining, it destroys the environment. I just bought it because it's just so neat to drive. So for him, he loves driving it. He has a second car that he can drive if he has to actually get somewhere uh, of any kind of distance. You know, he, he has a gasoline car. But he, p- people like the technology. Like, they, you know, they, they're early adopters. It's like people who used to line up to buy iPhones. There's always a percentage of people who love that. But the government didn't force people to buy iPhones, and the government didn't say you can't buy a rotary phone after 2035, and we'll pay you to buy, we'll, you know, we'll install cell towers, we'll pay you to buy the iPhone. So that wasn't happening. It all happened organically, right? So with, with, with uh, electric vehicles, there's a huge amount of government um, subsidization and, um, let's say, cajoling uh, and encouragement, in quotes, to, to move along in this path because people aren't moving fast enough. I mean, right now, the EV sales are, you know, under 10% of all car sales, and the Biden administration wants to get to 50%. I said, what is, what is the year? I said, 2035, 50%. Yep. And California wants all new cars, 100% of all new car sales to be electric by 2035. Well, and, and the California other thing is, is, is the chargers yeah. don't always work. But, John, talk about, I, I looked up, AAA has a number where they say the average time it takes to refuel a gasoline or diesel car is seven minutes. So some people take 10, some people take two or three minutes. It's relatively short. But they've, there's been the promise that it someday we'll be able to charge up that electric car in as fast as 30 minutes. But I think some of the best fast chargers are closer to an hour to get a full charge. And if you imagine pulling into a gas station behind three people, you think, well, I'm going to be here at least 15 minutes while they tank up and then while I tank up. But if you pull in behind three people with your electric car, the minimum, even with the fastest chargers, is likely to be hours, isn't it? Yeah, in that kind of scenario, you know, that's what happened to the... um uh, oh, I wrote about sec. this story. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the energy Granholm. secretary. They she did this, you know, um, multi-state uh, summer tour to, uh, tour touting the wonders of electric vehicles. And in Georgia, uh, one of the chargers was broken, and somebody in her, you know, in her entourage parked a gasoline car in front of a charger to reserve it, and it infuriated a local resident who called the cops on the energy secretary. So 
you know, that's because, so yes, so you will have situations like that where we're flaring tempers, especially when it's really hot, like this is in the summer, it's 95 degrees, you're in asphalt, you've got a crying baby in a car, you know, it's, it, it'll be frustrating. Um, in most, there are chargers that do charge in 30 minutes. They're, I forget what their voltage is, like they're like 350, they're very high voltage, they do make them, they're very expensive, and maybe they'll become normal at some point. Um, but most chargers aren't like that. Even most fast chargers are not that fast, you know, are not 30 minute chargers. Um, and, uh, and most chargers aren't fast chargers. Most chargers are level two chargers and they, they give you five to 60 miles of range per hour, which is roughly 30 miles of range per hour. Uh, whereas the super fast chargers will give, you know, like say 300 miles uh in 45 minutes or something like that. in 45 minutes that john morosky you got to read the whole piece that he wrote for real clear investigations john is an investigative journalist john we appreciate the time back in a moment i'll get to your phone calls and emails glad to have those calls at 866 hey lars naysayers go first you can email talk at larslarson.com and vote in our twitter poll you'll find it at larslarson.com you're listening to the best of the lars larson show So you don't have to. Bringing the political heat. He's Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, October 22nd, 1981, the U.S. national debt hit, uh, well, a, tr- a trillion dollars. I know it sounds like a long time ago, 42 years ago. Fast forward to today, it has increased to $33 trillion. And of course, that doesn't even begin to count all of the unfunded mandates, things like Social Security, Medicare, and other things that we have agreed to pay, and we have absolutely no idea where the money is. The guy who does know where the money is and where it's been going is our friend Grover Norquist, president of Americans for Tax Reform. Grover, welcome back to the program. Good to be with you. Thank you. You made a great comparison in that uh, one of the words I try to avoid using because the liberals use it so much in such a bad way is sustainable. They'll talk about sustainable architecture and sustainable energy and sustainable food. They're all about sustainable, but you've questioned, how about some sustainable spending, spending that we, that doesn't run us into this massive amount of debt? Oh, absolutely. We have a real challenge with spending continuing at the state level as well as the federal level at Americans for Tax Reform, the group that I uh, organized, we ask people to take the pledge not to raise taxes. That solves a lot of the problem. And uh, most Republican governors and uh, congressmen and senators have taken and kept the pledge. Uh, But spending is the true cost of government. Uh, Once the government spends a dollar, they either had to take it from people in taxes or borrow or inflate to get that money. And that money comes out of our pockets one way or the other. But you, you can't do a spending pledge because if you, what would you say? I promise not to spend more than what this year's budget number. Well, with inflation and time, you know, it changes. So, um, and when they do those budgets, you know, one committee 
spends money and then another committee changes it and then it goes to the House and the Senate and the president. And a politician could tell you, you know, I, I opposed much of what was in that bill that I voted for. And they're not lying, right? Other people stuck stuff in and he wanted one thing in it and other stuff got added on. So we, we've put together budgets for the 50 states that say, if you didn't, if you grew the budget, state budget, just as rapidly as the incomes of the people who live in the states. So government spending would not grow faster than the paychecks of the people in the state. Yep. And we're sharing this in each state to say, you know what? If you do this each year, you don't become a greater burden on the people of your state. If you do it over 10 years, you can become a very significantly less expensive government for people. This is the difference over time that gave you New York spends twice as much per person as Florida. Okay. They have roughly the same number of people. Florida is a little bit bigger and uh, New York spends 230 billion and uh, they spend 115 billion in Florida, half as much. So what do they do in New York? They don't do in Florida. They both got roads. They both have schools. They both have prisons. Uh, New York hires more people, more bureaucrats. They pay them more. They have fewer hours that they work. Uh, they get pensions that you and I will never see. Uh, and they get benefits on top of the pay, um, which also is sort of a hidden expense, hidden from taxpayers too often. And that's, but, but that happens over 20, 30, 40 years that you get a doubling of the cost of government in New York versus Florida. But if New York started today to just grow as fast as people's wages, they could get back in, in shape, um, like, you know, losing weight or exercising or something. You don't do it overnight, but you can do it over time. And some states have actually, um, you know, sat down and for the last 10 years, they've kept spending from growing faster than the wages of the people in their state, Texas, Oklahoma, North Carolina, Louisiana, one that surprised me, um, Connecticut. Um, wow. So these are uh, once, and these these are dealing with the, um, the the general fund, which is the the uh, fund that the state controls. Not you know, if the federal government comes in, throws a bunch of money on top of something. That's really not the state's uh, choice, and so on. The federal government decided they were going to do X, Y, or Z. But the, the the funds that they control, they've actually kept those. Those states have, have kept that down, but um, and. Alaska, Colorado, West Virginia, and Wyoming have kept both, both with federal funds and without federal funds, below the uh, wages of people in the state. So if you keep spending in control, then it becomes a lot easier not only to keep taxes under control, but there are 12 states today that are phasing their income tax down to zero. How? By doing a version of that. Saying well, we're Mississippi is spend. one of them, isn't it? Yes, yes. And I, I've watched what they're doing, they, and, and I think Idaho must be another one of them because they both bragged we've been able to reduce taxes uh, while everybody else in America in government is saying, oh, we have all these crises going on all the time, which means we need more money. No, not necessarily. You need better management. Yes. North Carolina has been reducing taxes just about every year for 11 years, and they bring their spending down, and they've been taking the income tax rate down from – over about seven and a half down to, towards four, and they're on the way to 2.4. Well, the other thing is I think you get better government, uh, Grover, because 
people say, well, you hate government. No, government's a tool. I don't hate my chainsaw, but it's dangerous if used the wrong way. I think government's the same way. It's a great tool, and you need it for certain things. But if you were to say, well, when a state bureaucracy says, we only have this much money because the population only grew or the paychecks only grew this much, then we have to be very careful about how we spend it. If you've got an unlimited uh, pocketbook and you go with your family to the to, to Costco, you know, just fill up the carts. Doesn't matter. Nobody even looks at the price because we've got the money to pay for it when you get to the cash register. Whereas the person who's looking at their paycheck saying, I have $175 to spend on food for the next you know week. And you say, so we're not spending a dime over 175. You become very particular about what you pick and what you buy, right? Absolutely. It's the old saying that work, uh, I'm sorry, work expands to fill the time available. You know, yeah. if your paper's done in two days, your paper's done in four days. If you give them four days, the work will take four days. Uh, and money will, you know, government budgets will expand to fill the amount of money available, regardless of what the job is. The job just gets more expensive. Grover, well, I wish we could, just to give people a parting thought, one of the numbers, two of the numbers you gave me, total federal spending in one decade rose 69%. So say 7% a year for 10 years. Now, has anybody's paycheck gone up 7% a year for the last 10 years? A few people, but the average person, no way has their paycheck gone up 7% a year for the last 10 years. And at the state level, it's more like 5% per year for the last 10 years. When the government is growing that fast, Grover Norquist from the Americans for Tax Reform. Grover, thanks very much. I appreciate the time. If the government is growing faster than our paychecks are growing, then at some point, either we go bankrupt or the government goes bankrupt or they run us into bankruptcy. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Daisy was abandoned by 